life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident, rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Season 2, Episode 9. I don't want to talk about it. Hello, everyone. Oh, it's so good to be together again, and I am blown away by the number of people who download Blink of an Eye every day across the United States. Yes, of course it is rewarding, because my producer and I spend over 100 hours producing one episode. And I want to give a shout out to Billy O, a dad whose son attended the same school Archer did, the McDonough School and was a few years younger than Archer. Billy O told me he has been listening and following Blink of an Eye. He also told me, we don't forget what happened to others as it impacts us almost as much. You know, that is so true, isn't it? And quite profound when we stop and consider our collective understanding now of family systems and how connected we all are to each other. Thanks, Billy O, for following us on Instagram at Blink of an Eye Pod. I love to hear from you and what you have to share about your lives and your insights. Please keep writing me at louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. <laughs> you know, as an adjunct law professor for many years, I would tell my students to write about their insights, not about regurgitating what I had taught them, but more about what the application of what we were learning looked like in their lives and how it was shaping their thinking. Insights. I hope you have some each time we listen in together. And thank you for telling your friends to subscribe as well, wherever they get their podcasts, or encouraging them to listen if they are new to podcast listening. I've learned that many of our listeners are first-time podcast listeners who courageously search for Blink of an Eye podcast thanks to hearing about it from someone else. We do strengthen each other. Thank you to all of you. There are over 21,000 listens now. As we return to the blink of an eye story this week, we come face to face with adversity again. And just on the heels of thinking we were out of the woods, so brace yourself. For this weekend in the ICU, look back. In this episode, you will hear about another response to trauma, which is to shut down, to clam up, to not 
want to talk about it. And this is okay. Indeed, it might be familiar to you or to someone you live with or love with. Well, you'll hear about it in context of one of my teenagers in a look-back interview with Dutch, my youngest son. And I'll further explore this very real trauma experience in the Trauma Healing Learnings, which you can download this Saturday. Episode 9, I Don't Want to Talk About It, Trauma Healing Learnings, where I'll share what might be new information and some practical tips for your life. So sit back, take in a deep breath, and anticipate something that might inspire you to think more about your own healing journey or the journey of others. Settle your body. Settle your spirit. Here we go. Back to 2015. Episode 9. I don't want to talk about it. August 22nd, Saturday, day 18. Life can change in the blink of an eye. I rubbed my eyes and saw the day breaking and the morning sunlight cracking through the sides of the drawn shades in room 3117. Paula had called me because Archer had bottomed out again. I don't even remember racing up the garden state except that I couldn't get to Archer fast enough. Pneumonia. It was wicked and scared me half to death as I watched Archer's chest barely moving, even on the lung machines, even with a collapsed lung, all the night before. But Archer had evened out and pulled through. We are out of the woods of darkness, I texted Billy. Paula had come in on our grand plan to begin to gather so we could all be together when Dutch returned. (sighs) That's what I yearned for in an aching kind of way for all of us to be together. I was so grateful for Paula and I knew Pete was coming back later tonight to relieve me again. I thought it was safe enough and okay to leave Archer for a part of the night or day with the big kids. We thought he had stabilized. My attention was on my thinking of Dutch and Archer seeing each other for the first time. Dutch, it was going to be good to have him home with us. Monday. The start of his school year had come up so fast. I hope I'd made all the phone calls for him to start his soccer practice and school year smoothly. I felt this new pull from the outside world with the end of August looming. I wanted Dutch to feel he was with us all, a part of this. I wanted us all together. It was crazy because I felt this pressure that all my children needed to be present in their lives, and I couldn't keep them in Atlantic City. I also felt, at some level, 
that something was happening to our whole family. Something significant that was changing our lives forever. And I wanted us all together. It was a sharp desire to make sure not one of us was left out or elsewhere and not part of this experience. We needed to experience it together. It was a strong feeling. With us all together, I wanted us to hear Archer's prognosis and to have more of our questions answered. I had left multiple messages with hospital personnel requesting another family meeting. This time with the chief of trauma, Dr. Raymond Tolucci. Touch. I was excited to see my baby after so many weeks away. I gently threw up the shades to see the August summer morning trying to maximize the natural light. It always seemed like it wanted to escape, gray, trapped between the towering buildings and their massive masonry walls. It didn't seem like any hospital architect gave much thought to the patient experience. But then again, all the beds faced the hallway for the convenience of the staff and medical care. I got that. I had just been thinking about it a lot as I hoped that room I spied across the hall would open soon and I prayed for the safe transfer of whoever was in there. While it was morning, thank you Lord for another day. It's now Sunday and there's much to bring you up to speed on. But I'll start with Saturday. I sent out this update. This post will include updates from the past few days. I am aware of exhaustion setting in. My sleep for any length of time at home now is almost impossible. As I awake, grabbing my iPhone to see if there's a text about anything else that has gone wrong in the hours of being away. With all the good things of Thursday's tracheotomy surgery and Friday's sitting in the chair, Archer had bottomed out two more times, and the doctors are not sure of our next steps. It's been a hard last couple days. And my elation is now tempered again with a wonder. When will this dipping into the narrow space between physical life and death cease? I pray to Mary that Archer will get over this hurdle of heart and lungs so that we may move to the next step. I pray that Billy and I will be sustained through the odyssey of watching him dip and soar. I do not want to get numbed by the gnawing need to temper any momentary elation. 
How can it be with all the progress of the last two days and my saying to myself, how good it is to be out of the woods of darkness? And again, we can experience new terror this time during the day, followed by another in the night. I now see that yesterday's hiccup was really a foreshadowing for the night to follow. On the heels of the quiet excitement we felt Friday morning when the routine morning chest x-rays showed no pneumonia, no pneumothorax in the lungs, and they lowered Archer's PEEP ventilator setting from 10 to 9 and also removed the wall suction from his lung tubes. Yay! So awesome! Within hours, Archer's body wasn't able to sustain this progress move. After a routine lung suction, his heart rate and blood pressure plummeted. Flatline. It only lasted two to three seconds, and the medical team raced in and Archer's body fought back, and both his blood pressure and heartbeat regained on their own. But it was very scary, as dear Pete was there having to witness and experience this right midday. It was so unexpected. When Pete texted me, I wondered, dear Lord, How long does this last? I also felt helpless. Even with Pete there, our anchor, who has been giving Billy and me such respite, and on whom Archer very much relies for his blend of kindness and competence and gentle, grounded presence. The medical team made a decision to leave the peep at nine but to hook Archer back up to the temporary pacemaker, which is a step in the wrong direction, but one we will gladly accept to keep him alive. Another chest x-ray. Yes, Archer can get more than one x-ray every single day that we are here, I just learned was related to my concern for radiation, but they told me there's no other alternative in medicine at this time. It showed the lungs and heart to be in good condition, with no more pneumonia having set into the lungs. They thought the unexpected incident must be related to his recovery from surgery, linked to his type of C5 burst injury. They performed more chest percussion, beating on his back with their karate chop hands, and then with a machine. They told us they thought it was just a little hiccup and everything looked good thereafter. One of the Cape May priests came and did an anointing of the sick him. Pete read Archer more of his cards that he adores. 
The room was freshened with essential oils and spiritual waterfalls, music playing softly on Pandora, and the window shade up enough to let in the little bit of natural light. A cathedral mom arrived, bearing incredible gifts of construction paper pennants on a twine roping, each lovingly hand-decorated by a different cathedral or McDonough or Kilman family. They are like prayer flags. We strung them up in the room, and it's very joyful. Archer loves them, along with the Archer Strong posters from the McDonough schoolmates. Archer spent some time in the chair, and all was good. Paula then arrived from Baltimore Friday evening and took over for the wee hour shift so Billy and I could sleep. Yes, Billy was leaving at four o'clock in the morning to pick up Dutch from his main camp, and I promised I would meet Paula back at 8 a.m. Paula was a real trooper with great strength. We really thought it was just all a hiccup. It wasn't. Archer again went to flatline across the monitors, this time for six seconds before his own heart resumed, assisted by the temporary pacemaker. It happened early morning again, at that low 3.30 a.m. hour. They're thinking it might be seizures, but she had texted me. I wish I could fly. I commuted up the Garden State Parkway, and I thought I was flying. I did our usual car exchange in front of the hospital, because the hospital parking lot, shared with Caesars, is now often barricaded and full due to the many big concerts here in Atlantic City in August. Paula and I said our goodbyes, and I ran and arrived back at the room to a gathering of new doctors. This time, the chief of pulmonology alongside other trauma docs. They were all very serious and quiet, as they said that Archer is very unusual to have him thrown into near cardiac arrest when they adjust his ventilator settings. But we have to adjust his vent settings if he is to make progress out of this trauma ICU. There was so much gravity. I got it. They had to get Archer out of this ICU and they weren't sure how. They said they usually don't see this in other spine injuries. Please pray that the medical team will discern the right research, the correct course for our next step. I had many observations to share with them regarding what Archer reports and when his heart beats strong and when it doesn't. And they said he may be suffering seizures. That that may have been the muscle spasms he would report to me in his neck and shoulders when he asked us to massage his shoulders. 
then there may be a better medication than the one they have given him. They said they would try some different medication. I asked if there is anything we should change, do, or not do. The head of the team noted that, based on the monitors, Archer clearly does better when he is stimulated in conversation with a family member. And as we spoke, his heart monitor showed a stronger beat. And they noted the quality of the room, too. They said it was very good for his recovery and asked me to please continue. I couldn't believe their notice. I felt for the first time that some integration might be happening. I felt gratitude. I know it was a small miracle unto itself since Archer's situation was complicated, I then asked if they would be open to other eyes on the situation from other physicians we knew at the University of Maryland Shock Trauma and Johns Hopkins. Not that they would be giving opinions per se, but so that they could review and exchange their best thinking. We needed the best thinking, I told them. The medical team said it was too much red tape. But I said we, the patient, would authorize it. Wouldn't it be helpful if we could all work together, not at cross purposes, but in concert for Archer's benefit? I asked for a family meeting with the Chief of Trauma. Please pray for us. Sending love from the Sempt family. I knew Dutch and Billy and Dewey would arrive soon. I watched the big school clock above Archer's bed. The second hand swept around another day. They arrived outside the door. I could see their feet beneath the drawn curtain and the glass door as I scurried out to greet them. I said it had been a rough day, and I asked Dutch if he was ready, that it might be hard. I then walked back in with just Dutch. I am shattered again watching our dear Dutch see Archer for the first time. He's been away at camp a month in Maine, grew at least two inches, and is now taller than I. While we called Dutch's camp immediately after the day one midnight surgery to speak with Dutch and let him know Archer had had a serious accident in the ocean and broke a part of his neck, we knew so little. We had told him to stay at camp and we could touch base after the Cold War Sports Olympics that he had talked about all throughout the winter and we know it meant so much to him. I remember awakening 
on day three with the nagging feeling that it was important to make sure it was not our decision, but that we gave Dutch the decision to stay or come home, and that we were not forcing him to stay. Billy and I scripted my short statement so I would stay strong when we called him again. Dutch asked me if Archer was going to be okay. I felt the hot tears well in my eyes as I gritted my teeth, willing myself to take deep breaths before responding. Yes, my love, he will. We will wait to see how he does. We will need you to say a few prayers for him. Dutch asked if he could call me every day. And I said, of course. But it might be a little hard since you're in the woods. And it also wasn't necessary as we'd be taking care of Archer. He could help when he came home. And we wanted him to have a wonderful time at camp. By that point... Although we then knew that Archer was paralyzed and the doctors had referred to Archer as a quadriplegic, we still didn't have a full comprehension of Archer's situation as we gave Dutch the option to come home or stay. I was trying hard to listen, to be open to God guiding my intuition and giving me strength to stay grounded about the best way to approach this with Dutch. I recall being concerned and thus careful that I didn't want Dutch to ever think we kept something very important from him that would forever tinge an otherwise joyful experience like camp or that would ever cause a breach of trust between us or that would ever plant a seed for suspicion in the future for his going away, for anything wonderful for that matter, if he thought something important would be withheld. And I wanted to honor that he is now 13 and becoming a young man. I also thought that maybe we actually would be out of the hospital before his camp session ended, and thus we might actually call camp to arrange to get him early so that he would never feel he missed the experience of all of us gathered here together in Atlantic City for Archer. What fanciful thinking that was, I now see. When Dutch confirmed with me, that it would be okay for him to call me daily. And I confirmed, of course, that it could be hard since he was in the woods. And it certainly would not be necessary as we wanted him to have a good time. He asked if he could sleep on his decision. I said, of course. The next day, Dutch, the camp director, and we arrived at a collaborative decision for Dutch to stay at camp. He had been looking forward to it all year. 
I confirmed that if he changed his mind, Dewey would drive up to get him in a heartbeat. I recall Dutch asking me tentatively before we hung up, And Mom, if I stay until camp ends, Archer, you, and I are still going to see Uncle Will in Saratoga, right? And my saying, no, darling, not this year. We will need to be with Archer here. There was much silence on the phone as the gravity of the unknown seemed to nonetheless still carry great weight. So when Billy, Dewey, and Dutch arrived at the hospital, I felt the stabs of a thousand more deaths as I held my sweet, darling 13-year-old who about collapsed in my arms when he saw Archer, who was iced with 103.8 fever, very weak and unresponsive. It was pretty awful, really. Please, please, Lord, have my children make it through this. All of us, all of us together. Billy and Dewey had driven up to get Dutch to talk with him in person and prepare him tenderly on their long car ride back. But what is enough preparation? Never enough for the up-close and personal reality. And how is it ever tender when your flesh and blood brother, whom you so dearly love, cannot feel your hand on his is a million miles away in mental connection and in a body that you begin to realize may not ever work again. Dutch was lost and I felt his devastation sharply and his incomprehension numbly as he could hardly approach Archer, his closest in age brother who teaches him so much and loves him so much, and whom he in turn adores. And I have no definitive answers to Dutch's softly uttered questions of, how long will he be able to? When can he? And on and on. I think the only thing that held us together as I held him close and we sobbed outside of Archer's presence were Mother Mary's arms around both of us, giving me the strength to whisper in Dutch's tear-moistened shirt, It's okay. It's okay to cry. It's okay to be very sad. It's okay. We will also be strong because God must have a divine plan for Archer. 
He does, my darling. We just have to allow it to unfold. But as you know, we are back to fighting death again. How can that be? I thought I might collapse too, as my young, tall, little oak tree literally fell over into my arms. And I carried us both slowly out of Archer's room into the hallway as he sobbed. I will never forget that day. He was inconsolable. And I have a new worry, Dutch, hereafter. I realized I had not prepared Dutch for how cold the room was. But I thought I had prepared him for what he would see when he entered. But actually so much had happened on Saturday as they drove up to Maine that none of us prepared anyone for anything, I guess. It was all happening so quickly. It's a funny thing that I would do my best to prepare each of Archer's friends as they arrived for at least the shock or the realization that their friend was paralyzed for life, the medical staff said. But I didn't believe that. I didn't say it. But I did not prepare touch. I took for granted that Billy and Dewey had talked with him on the long 18-hour drive. Well, I mean, the last eight hours or so, at least, when they were with Touch. But I could tell as Touch crumpled in my arms that he had not been prepared at all. Or maybe there was nothing more that would have prepared him. Maybe they did. I don't know. But I felt a surge of anger. Why don't boys talk? But I was really angry with myself for ever assuming they would. Billy had been adamant he wanted to be with Dutch on that car ride. But that doesn't mean any words were exchanged. I should know better raising four sons. I felt the burning in my body nonetheless. The heat surged throughout my chest and arms. And it was ironic, as the hospital room was a steady 42 freezing degrees. Archer's body with the severed spinal cord was not able to regulate his body temperature, and he liked it cold. Day after day, I wore my only pair of summer white pants I had in New Jersey, and I wrapped up in a white cotton hospital-grade blanket. An old friend and employee, Mary Sue McCarthy, and her husband, Bill Hopkinson, drove all the way from Baltimore, unexpectedly, bearing gifts of two brand-new Patagonia pullover fleece jackets for both Billy 
and me. I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't. It was such a kindness. So I know how expensive they are. But it felt like Christmas as I put mine on right away. Archer's temperature was rising, though. It was almost 104 degrees. They were not successful bringing it down with bags of fluid dripped into his veins. So they iced him. I had never seen anything quite like it. He was literally iced. A huge machine was wheeled in, and they unzipped from gigantic duffel bags, huge, waterproof, sort of quilted canvas sheets that they slid under Archer's chest and another under his legs. It took a few medical staff. They wrapped Archer up and secured him with Velcro. They then plugged in a couple tubes to the material he was wrapped like a sausage in, and they turned on that huge machine. It made a lot of noise. It pumped ice-cold water or Freon or something into the long cells of those rubber vests wrapped around Archer's entire torso and legs. He was put in a deep freeze, but he continued to sweat. I had never witnessed anything like it. It was quite a scene. It took an army of staff to position Archer as they were in a hurry to get him wrapped and a hurry to get him unwrapped. I knew Archer was again in very bad shape. Father Matthias from our church in Cape May who had come driving all that way from exit zero. Uh, he was long gone by the time the boys got there. But the staff would not allow visitors for any period of time. But they allowed him I didn't fully sense the gravity of it all, really, as I had my mind focused on thoughts of Dutch. But Matthias asked me if he could perform an anointing of the sick. It's a Catholic sacrament that's given before last rites. I think I was numb. We were so not out of the woods. I asked Dutch if he would be willing to do an interview with me. He was not interested for quite a number of months. Then he agreed to a limited interview to talk about when he was at camp and got my call and when they came to Atlantic Care. He told me he wouldn't have much to say. Billy, Archer, and Dutch still do not talk about the actual accident or time in the hospital. Here is an excerpt of our interview. So when we, so that call, I, do you remember what I said to you? I told you Archer had been in an accident. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you when you got that call or when you, when you heard, do you remember? process it to I don't know if this is important to you or not, but we had we didn't know either. 
wasn't even that we hadn't processed it yet. When, when I called you. You called me the day after. Yeah. The sixth. Yeah, I called you on the sixth. And we didn't, um, well, I called Steve on the sixth and he arranged to get you when you were kayaking on the seventh. And it was Steve who said, I don't think it would be a good idea to get you in the evening. And I had said, I was just deferring, but I said, I just want to talk to Dutch as soon as possible. I can go back and look. It may have been later, later that afternoon. Well, you know what, actually, there's sort of a need. It's kind of what it's all about. It's some of the unimportant details end up being important, you know, to piece all together. It's not, not important it's not to you. Necessary. Unnecessary. I don't know. I wouldn't want to like read those if I didn't have to. Read the text. You don't yeah, you don't have to. I have been. Yeah. I'm saying if I were you, I wouldn't want to. Yeah, I probably would not have wanted to. Um, even, even two years ago, but since it's been five years, I'm okay now. And they've been really helpful because they've, they've helped me actually, but I called you again. Well, Archer had a heart attack on the seventh or eighth. I don't remember those calls. Yeah. And I called Steve and said, I need to talk with Dutch. I don't remember. You don't remember? Well, I told you. I said, Dutch, um, we're in the hospital. And Archer, and I used the word quadriplegic. And we would be up to still pick you up. You could still stay for color ward. And it was in the middle of color ward. And you said, is he going to be okay? And I said, yes, we hope so. I don't remember any of that. I was blocked it. So, yeah. The 13th. Oh, I'm going to you now. Right. You also were in the middle of heavy competition for Cold War. So it could have just been a, you know, <laughs> get out of my way, like a distraction kind of thing. I'm personally finding that when I interview other people, and they give me pieces of information that I didn't have before, it really helps to unlock and help me think about it and realize, right, you know, like, like you just did for me. Oh, right, that's, that happened. Yeah. You know, I think that a lot, a lot of us block things so we can just keep going, you know what I mean? But that 
continue to block things when we have a supportive environment. I wanted to provide that environment for Dutch. I was aware of blocking and numbing in trauma. But he was young and we were in crisis. I did the best I could as a parent. But I don't think it was enough. It was so hard to have to remain in New Jersey while Dutch had to return to Maryland for school in mere days. It was so hard. Maybe we should have brought him back to New Jersey to be with us longer. It was so chaotic. And just the seeing what all Archer was going through must have been terrorizing to a little boy. So I thought it better he did stay at camp for a little protection and then go back to school for some routine and safety. He was just a boy. And he wanted to stay at camp. He chose to stay at camp. I so wanted him to have a normal experience. But even the drive to get him at camp and who should go, I should have gone. I know he was expecting me to come. But Archer was so touch and go. Billy had thought Dewey, who was 19 at the time, could drive up to Maine to get Dutch, but then we didn't want to lay that on Dewey to do alone. We were scared of the boys in the car that long with this happening to their brother and on their minds. It was just so much to worry about. Billy and I had made the choice. He and Dewey would go together to pick Dutch up. Billy said he would talk with Dutch and that Dutch would have Dewey for support. Well, here is what Dutch had to say about that. Is there anything you want to say about when Dad and Dewey then came to pick you up? Nope. And then they drove you all the way back to Atlantic City. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they, you came right to the hospital, I think. In my color was shirt. What color was the shirt? What color was the other team? It's always blue and white. Always blue and white. That's the Western's colors. I see. Blue Hustle. Blue Hustle. We were supposed to be. Our theme was like West Coast Rappers. I see. West Coast Rappers. <laughs> yeah, it was sick. It was a good first year. It was a good first year. You know what? I completely forgot that you were in your color for sure, but I can't see it right now. You came. There's a red hustle in front. Yeah, you came straight from camp. I was one of those noobs that wore the color wear shirt on the last day at camp. <laughs> typical, first, typical first year kid. Don't you love it? Yeah. You should bottle that, you know? I mean, seriously. You know, put it on his aftershave. She get older. It's sweet. <laughs> yeah, you should find that shirt. It's really stunning what the traumatized brain will focus on. While it will block 
some details. It also remembers other weird, tiny details that might be trivial to someone else. Because trauma really disrupts memory. I think that is what was happening with Dutch. And maybe also myself. At least in regard to his t-shirt. What was really important to him totally escaped my radar. And what was really important to me, like all the orchestration details of when and where and how to talk with him in the least disruptive way, or the room we were creating to bring some relaxation, totally didn't matter to him. So you were wearing, you gotta look it up maybe, but you were wearing um, your shirt when you came in and you came right on in, straight into Archer's room. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go back to that. Please. Well, we won't go back to it all. But do you remember walking into his room? Of course I remember walking into his room. What do you remember? Nothing good. Tears. First time I cried. First time you cried about Archer? I don't know. I just remember crying. I really can't. I never did. You're not really holding him yet. No. I just remember crying. I don't remember anything else. Just crying. You're scary. One of the things I will say is that when you're ready, it will be important to go back because you've got... I don't think if I'm ever... I think if I do go back, it's not going to be with you. And he might not. But I hope he does. And I hope this podcast helps him. All in time. We are all on our own highly personalized trauma healing journey. I just hope he starts the journey. I think he has. He shared another piece with me. Small, but meaningful. Here it is. I'm quiet. I don't like to talk. Oh, I don't mind. Talk again. I love you. Be safe. Dutch wasn't the only one that day who didn't want to talk about what had happened to Archer. I had a text message from Patty Schmucker, James's mom. James had asked to come up and visit Archer too before he left for college the next day. Patty texted me. Can you please let me know how the visit goes? I am concerned. James won't share. He needs to talk it out, but he doesn't. Boys. I did understand the phenomenon. I called Patty and she shared amidst tears that James wouldn't talk at all about the accident and told her and her husband he didn't want to go back to college. She said 
he just wasn't himself since the accident. And she shared how flummoxed they were about what to do, as he was the first-generation college and they had little frame of reference. When James arrived at the hospital, I told him about the call with his mom. He shared with me his doubts about returning to college and told me he really wasn't a good student. He said he just went to play golf and didn't feel like doing that anymore. My heart ached. But I remember feeling this surprising, comforting feeling, like a full circle connection with James. I knew that feeling myself of feeling lost and unsure. And here was James. James, whom I didn't even know all that well, but who in my eyes walked on water and would forever walk on water because of his valiant effort to rescue Archer. He had given us a gift I could never repay. I honestly felt at his feet in mercy. What could I offer to James? Could I ever give him anything so precious? I asked James if he believed in God. He said yes. I took his hands in mine and I closed my eyes and I asked God to give James guidance. And then I asked God to give me guidance. And when I opened my eyes, James was staring at me in his nonchalant way. I told him a college education was important and that I hoped Archer would have the opportunity to go to college someday. And I added, I know you're strong and wise and will make a good decision. And I gave him a hug. It was all I knew to offer, my confidence in his judgment. Sometimes that is all we can offer. <laughs> if boys only knew how hard they make it on their mother sometimes. And I think on themselves too, when they don't want to talk about things. But you know, it's really helpful to know why this happens and how it happens differently for boys as we all process trauma in our own way in our own time. I sent another update. He is still fighting 103.8 fever, is iced, but we will win this with the intercession of your prayers. A prayer for a creative miracle. I taped it to the door outside of Archer's room to perhaps be noticed upon approaching and on the linen closet inside Archer's room to perhaps be noticed upon entering and exiting. It essentially asked God to touch Archer with the same miracle working power that he used when he fashioned Archer inside his mother's womb. 
as surely as God created Arthur in his image and likeness, he can also recreate him now and restore his health. Arthur is winning this battle. Please pray today. Please continue to keep the Blessed Mother close to you. She is close to Archer. I asked him if he feels the energy of the collective prayer. And he said, yes. Thank you. Thank you, dear prayer warriors. Be good to each other. Amen. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is precious. Sending love, hope for everything, obtain everything. Thank you for tuning in to the Blink of an Eye story. You may continue listening this Saturday to the trauma healing learnings that accompany this story. At Trauma Healing Learning Episode 9, I don't want to talk about it. Thank you for listening. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue. You can learn more at baltimoremediation.com.